in our men's discipleship group on Wednesday nights last week, we watched a portion of a, a movie entitled Collision, and the, t- the subtitle is Christianity Good for the World. And what, is, what it is, it's a series of debates by um, the late Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson, who traveled around to all sorts of different places trying to answer the question or debating the question, is Christianity good for the world? Christopher Hitchens was a, a noted atheist. Uh, Doug Wilson is a PCA pastor in the West. And very, very interesting exchange. They were in both um, secular settings and Christian settings. They taught before uh, uh, students at Christian colleges. They talked before uh, atheist groups, and, and, and it was very, very interesting. It, it is very, very interesting to see their, their different takes on things. Uh, again, it's called Collision. If you want to check it out, it's, it's well worth the time to, uh, to wade through and, and think. It's, it's a, it engages your mind. It takes some thinking to follow. Uh, they're they're very, uh, very, very smart men. Christopher Hitchens, in one point, is extolling the, the beauty of nature as opposed to uh, what is supposedly the beauty of Christianity, uh, in his mind, from the Old Testament. And he actually starts to comment on the Ten Commandments. And he, he goes into a, a kind of a tirade, um, kind of restating in his own words, in his own view, what is valid and what is not of the Ten Commandments. And this is a, a very vague summary you can watch it in length if you if you check out this movie. Is in his mind the first four Ten Commandments are nonsensical, talking about God and the Sabbath. Uh, the fifth commandment, talking about honoring your father and mother, makes pretty good sense, although the promises associated with it don't really follow. Um, the the commandments on murder and bearing false witness, he he, he gives those and says those are those are good for for each culture. He says adultery, uh, he doesn't understand why that's thrown in and given equal weight. In his mind, that's a totally different issue and shouldn't be made a commandment. And the, the commandment to covet or not to covet, he said, is actually um, detrimental and it's counterintuitive and actually should not be followed according to him. So you've got people on this side of the equation, like Christopher Hitchens, that would say those kind of things and would even mock how God gave his law to mankind and say things like, why wouldn't God have revealed himself to an intellectual culture like the Chinese in those times? And instead, in his words, have given it out in the middle of nowhere on the side of a mountain to a bunch of slave people. On the other side of the equation, you have people inside of the church who look at commandments like these and make them into a list of rules that are to be posted up everywhere and followed to a T in order to gain some sort of favor with God. And to be an explanation of, if we don't follow these, then we will get the judgment of God. What do we make of the Ten Commandments? Are they, as a Christopher Hitchens would say, uh, uh, a terrible list that only a few of them actually make sense and other ones are actually detrimental and should never be followed? Are they a list of things by which we obtain favor with God and if we don't, we'll get the judgment of God? 
Or are they something else totally different altogether? To understand it, to understand the commandments, we have to get a sense of what's going on in the bigger picture, the bigger storyline of Scripture. What is going on? Well, we get a sense of it here in verse 1 of chapter 20 when it is a continuation of all that's come before. To begin, verse 1, it's and God spoke all these words, saying. It's a continuation of of something that's gone before. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he goes in to listing these commandments. What does he say? What has come before that gives us an understanding, a right understanding, of these commandments that he's about to tell his people? And then what does it have to do with us today? That's kind of where we'll go. Where he's come before is the people of Israel have found themselves in Egypt in slavery. Well, how did they get there? Well, generations before, um, they had gone down into Egypt to escape famine. Before that, God had covenanted with a a man named Abraham and and the people that would come from him um, to establish a relationship to preserve some promises. Before that, God had created man and woman and they had sinned against him, and sin had filled his good world. And so he had, had entered into a relationship with Abraham and the people that would come out after him, not to neglect the rest of the world, but that, so that through this people, he could save the rest of the world. And so that salvation is the backdrop, and then the specific deliverance of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt is the immediate context. So these words are not just some abstract rules to to act on our walls. They're not just a a list of nonsensical things that um, make no sense and that were given to a bunch of slave people that uh, obviously can't be true. They're a a list of of promises and rules that, in a context of a relationship between a God and his people whom he loves. They're a list of of statements, of rules that God is saying to his people, let me remind you who I am. There's a movie right now uh, coming up. I've seen it advertised the last two nights. Uh, A Hallmark Hall of Fame movie. Have you all seen those advertised? My my wife always makes fun of me and says, oh, I bet you want to watch that because they tend to be these very feel-good movies. Uh, This storyline is one that you've heard before where, for some reason, this guy is in love with this girl, but then something's happened to him, and he has got amnesia, short-term memory loss. So every day he wakes up and has to fall back in love with this girl all over again. And she has to convince him, no, you're my fiancé. Remember, let me remind you who I am and why you love me. And then he wakes up the next morning and they have to do it all over again. Well, that is, the, is a great illustration of what, you, when you read in the Old Testament, is God's relationship with the people of Israel. He has to constantly remind them, no, no, remember who I am. And specifically in this context where they've been in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, being subject to a worldview that is alien from theirs, that says, hey, worship any of these uh, many, many gods. If you have a need for fertility, then worship this God. If you have a need for, for rain, then worship this God. If you have a need for healing, then worship, worship this God. And God is saying, hey, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to bring you out of that slavery. 
but you need to be reminded of who I am. It's in that context that he speaks these words. In today's uh, society, we, we look at these and we say, well, we look back, and are they, are they, do they have anything to say to us today? I, I thought the Old Testament was the Old Testament in the era of law, and I thought today in the New Testament era we're under grace. So why do we even need to study these things? Well, there's, there's different categories that um, scholars and theologians use to understand the law. And it's categories like this. There's the moral law, there's the civil law, and there's the ceremonial law. When we speak of being in the era of grace, we're not saying that grace was, was never in the Old Testament. It's actually all the way through. We just described God's storyline of, of how he loved his people, how he, he preserved them to, to fulfill his promise, to save the world. Um, but there are certain aspects of the law that we read in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus that have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And those aspects are the ceremonial law, where he gives all of these, these ceremonies that, that enable his people to come before him. But with the coming of Jesus, that's been set aside because he's fulfilled all of those. Then there's the civil law, where God says, I'm going to set you apart as my people, and you need to live according to these these civil, civic laws to, to set yourself apart, to, to be a people unto myself, to not be the same way as the other nations. But with Jesus coming, he said, hey, there's no longer just a nation of Israel. My gospel is going to go forth to all the ends of the earth. And it's going to be my, my relationship now is not with just this people, but the whole church becomes the new Israel. So that's been set aside. But what hasn't been set aside is the moral law. These absolutes that describe not just a nation, that describe not just a ceremony of how to get to God, but describe how things are meant to be. How things are supposed to work with our relationship with a real and living God. And so when we come to a, a, a commandments, laws like this, we're coming to a moral law. Moral absolutes that tell us how to relate rightly to God and live in relation to him. The laws, as we take it here, are, are meant to do at least three things. Number one, they're to restrain evil. When we come to a, a law like you shall not murder, we read it, and we're supposed to say, hey, those are, are is a moral principle on which we can base uh, civic laws and other things that restrain evil and say, hey, it's not good to kill people. It's not in the best interest of, of us or our society to kill people. And actually, it's the opposite. We're supposed to promote life. So it restrains evil. But more than that for a Christian is as we look and see how we don't measure up and can't fit these laws, can't measure up to these laws, it's supposed to do something else. It's supposed to drive us to one who has. And that one is Jesus, who kept all of these perfectly for us. So we see our inability to keep them, and they drive us to the cross to trust in him. But thirdly, um, as Calvin put it, there, there, there's a third use of the law, and that's to be a light, a lamp to our feet that shows us the way things work best in God's economy, the way that we're supposed to write, relate rightly to each other. So we'll do that in each one of these as we come uh, and study the Ten Commandments. We'll look at, at, at different aspects of, of the law of God. So, We'll take the first one. 
today. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is the first commandment, okay? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me, or maybe more literally, besides me. He's not saying before here in the sense of put one in front of me, but he's like, in, 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 as I look out, God, I should see no other, other gods that you're worshiping. I'm the only one. It, besides me, you shouldn't be worshiping any other gods because I am the God. He's coming to his nation of Israel, been 400 years of slavery, and he's saying, I am your God. I am the Lord, your God. I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who's made a covenant with you. So maybe a, another way of saying it, to maybe get at the heart of the first commandment, is to say it like this. God's coming to his people. And just like they've, like that movie, maybe had some amnesia, have been immersed in a different worldview, a different culture for so long that they've got to be reminded of who he is. He says, let me tell you who I am. You shall have no other gods before me, or another way of understanding it would be something like this. I love you, and I want to be your husband. Or maybe a better way, I love you, and you may have forgotten it. You may have amnesia, but I'm your husband. Now, how do I get from you shall have no other gods before me to saying a paraphrase of that would be something like, I love you, and I'm your husband? Well, because... For God to say, you shall have no other gods before me, is in the context of a relationship. All through the Old Testament, you see God describe his relationship with the nation of Israel when they are in sin in context of things like adultery. He's saying, hey, I'm your husband and you've cheated on me over here. You've gone after other gods and you've broken our covenant relationship. When we think of marriage in our day and age, when you come to a ceremony like that, what are you doing? You're making promises. You've got vows that you're taking. And you're saying, hey, I want to stand here. If you do it in a church ceremony, church service, you would say, I want to stand here in front of God ultimately and then all of these witnesses and say, hey, y'all hold me to these things. I'm making these sacred, solemn vows and I'm counting on you as witnesses to walk with me through life and hold me. Say, no, you can't run. You can't leave. Remember the, 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 the vows you took, the promises you made to that person before God and all of us. So God is saying, hey, you, you may have forgotten it, but you made vows and I made vows. We're knit together. We're in a relationship. I love you and I am your husband. When you read in... Um, in uh, Ezekiel or in Hosea as God describes his relationship with an exiled Israel who have gone after uh, other things for security God describes it in that sort of a manner and he describes it very vividly as a husband who's had his wedding vows broken by his bride so I think another way of saying it of you shall have no other gods before me, is for God to say, hey, I love you, and you're my husband. What does that mean? What is the character of this kind of love? To get at that, I want to take us for just a minute and fast forward all the way to the Gospel of John 
to a very famous passage, starting in John three sixteen. My guess is that if I were to start it, you could quote John three sixteen. Can you quote the verses that follow it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's interesting, isn't it, that that's the verse that we go to to uh, explain the love of God. But the verses that follow it have some really hard things to say and to hear. What is, God, what is John saying characterizes a love relationship with God? At least three things in, in, in this passage, John three sixteen, which I want to relate to our verse at hand, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. The first thing is this, love, the character of the love of God, and the reason he says you shall have no other gods besides me is because love is divisive. Love is single-minded. Here's what I mean by that. Um, for us to say to somebody, hey, I'm not going to get into that. That's going to cause conflict because I love the person is really contradictory in saying. Any, if you love anything or anybody, it's going to cause division. Why is that? Because if you really love that thing or that person, you're going to say, hey, I commit myself to it. I think that this person, this thing, deserves my affection, my allegiance. I give myself to it. And guess what? Other people are not going to see that person or that thing in the same way that you see it. And for you to say, I love you. I love this person. And for others to say, well, I don't then guess what? You're going to go in different directions. It necessarily is going to cause division. He says it there. He says, Jesus came into the world not to condemn it. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world. But by my very coming, the world is going to be condemned because some people are not going to love me. And, and it's not what he wants, but some people reject him. So just by Jesus coming... There's a division that takes place. If you really love something, you have a, a purity of heart, it says in Matthew. A single-minded, um, you're giving yourself to this person single-mindedly. Number two, not, not only does love divide, but love owns. It includes ownership. There's a change that takes place in real love. A giving up of rights, a trust, a, a, a dependence. When I made my marriage vows to Annette. I was saying something. I was saying, hey, I bind myself to you. So I, I can't just go do what I want to all the time. I can't just up and leave one day. I'm saying, no, I, I, I've given up those rights. No longer is it just, hey, Eric, do you want to go do X and Y and Z? It's, well, I, I'm bound to somebody. And so let me go talk to her and see. What do we want to do? And it's not because... Ball and chain, whip, you know. 
It's, no, I've given myself to this person. I've given up my rights. I'm no longer Eric Ashley, the single guy. Now I'm Eric Ashley, the couple with Annette, the married couple. We've, the two have become one. We're still us, but we're, there's a change that's taken place. The two have become one flesh. Now there's a, a new um, couple that has been created, and that includes trust and dependence. There's, there's specific commands in the Bible that says, hey, once you're married, you're, even your body is not your own anymore, but belongs to that other person. Um, there's a, uh, a sense of, hey, there's, there's a meeting of needs. There's a, a provision uh, that's, especially with a wife to a husband, he's going to provide for me. Um, he's going to withhold things from me that aren't in my best interest. He's going to protect me from things that, that aren't for my good. He's going to lead me uh, in ways that I have to trust. And it's the same with our relationship with God. He is our husband. He loves us, and he's saying, I'm your husband. So you're going to have to give in to that new sense of ownership. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to me. You have a giving up of rights, and there's a trust, a dependence. I now want to meet your needs. I'm the one now who protects you. I'm the one who withholds things from you that may not make you happy, but that aren't for your good. I'm the one that protects you. I'm the one that leads you. You read in places like Psalm 23, what does he lead us? He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And guess what one of those paths of righteousness is? The right paths right on the hills of that. The valley of the shadow of death. He's saying, hey, I'm I'm the one leading you there. It, It doesn't make sense to you all the time. It's a shadow. But who's there with you? I'm taking you through this thing, and you trust me that what I'm doing is for your best. You trust me that though you don't understand it all, I'm a good God, a good husband, one who loves you and will lead you through that valley. So love divides, love owns, and then thirdly, love sacrifices. And there's a sacrifice involved on both ends of a relationship like that. Now the interesting thing, when you come to a relationship with the Lord is that the sacrifices aren't equal. <laughs> we tend to think they are sometimes of, man, I'm having to give up a bunch to come to, to the Lord for Christianity. I'm having to give up all of these things. Yeah, I understand God gave up his son and, you know, died for me, and that's a great thing, but look what all I got to give up. You got a couple of parables that really unpack it that Jesus tells. One is the parable of the treasure and the pearl. Remember those? He says, hey, there's a treasure in the field, and somebody stumbles upon it. And what do they do? They go sell all that they have to have this field and the treasure that's in it. One is looking for this pearl. When he finds that pearl of great price, he goes and sells everything to have this pearl. So there's a sacrifice. There's a giving up, right? But what is, what is Jesus saying through this parable? Is he saying, hey, the price you paid was insignificant to what you got And you saw the value of it, and you gave those things up willingly to get this pearl, this treasure. James Boyce, in one of his commentaries, says it this way. He says, what did you have that you gave up? Well, you had your self-righteousness, and you thought that was a good thing. You thought, hey, look at all that I get to give up for you, God, my righteousness. I get all my good works, and God looks at them, and in places like Isaiah, he says, what is that? That's a filthy rag. 
you thought was pretty nice, but what you had to give up in comparison to what you got was nothing. There's another parable, the workers in the vineyard, that each one of them gets called at a different hour. Remember what happens? The first gets paid a what? A denarius, like he was a day's wage, like he was promised. What do the ones on the eleventh hour get paid? Same thing. Do the first workers like it? No. They're saying, hey, hold on, you're holding out on us. Why didn't I get what I was due? And he says, you did. You, you signed up for a day's wage. What, what is it to you that if I decide to give the ones in the 11th hour the same thing? I'm the master. Let me do with my money what I want to do with it. You got what was due you. Well, what is that person, what is the worker saying? He's saying, hey, I, I feel like I sacrificed. I worked, I worked all day long. I don't know if my sacrifice is what I'm worth, worth what I'm getting from you. This relationship with you, these, these perks of working in the vineyard all day long, this guarantee of a denarius, of a day's provision for my family. And the master says, you, you, whoa, you're out of line. You're forgetting what you've got. You think your sacrifice is worth more than what I sacrificed to give this to you. Love sacrifices on both ends, but they're not equal. God's sacrifice, you see it in, in here, he says what? He gave his only son. It reminds us of the sacrifice that Abraham gave in his son Isaac on the altar. Jesus is that lamb, that perfect, spotless sacrifice that rescues us from all of our sin, all of our filthy rags, and gives us his righteousness. So God is saying, I love you. I'm your husband. Don't, you don't have any other gods besides me. Let me be that for you. Let me provide for you in that way. Let me be your husband. Come to me for that, not any other gods. And the character of my love is it's, it's going to be single-minded. It's going to involve ownership, and it's going to involve sacrifice. But the sacrifice is not equal. What does that mean for us today, quickly? First is a choice. When you come to a commandment like this, uh, those that see clearly from an outside looking in of Christianity and understand this realize what's being said and therefore don't want Ten Commandments in places like courthouses and schools because they realize there's a claim being made here saying, hey, if we really follow those things, what's being asked of us is to give ourselves wholly to one and no other. A choice, and you must choose. You're not able to say, well, I'll take God, but I'll also keep my security, or I'll also keep my, my finances and my money, and or I'll also keep all these other things that I'm giving myself and looking to for trust. He says, no, you've got a choice to make, and that's the same thing that's true for us today. Not only if you're a non-Christian here today, do you have the ultimate choice to make in, in repenting, turning from where you're headed, and giving yourself to allegiance to God, but then daily as a Christian, Right? We've got a thousand different choices to make along those lines every day to say, okay, am I going to give myself to X, Y, or Z, or am I going to continue to give myself to God? A single minded obedience. Number two, your life is not your own. And it's very similar to what we just talked about. Where do you go for your protection? Where do you go for your provision? Where do you go to depend, to trust in? Who meets your needs? What meets your needs? What do you look to for, for guidance and for leadership? God says, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you. I'm your husband. I love you. You have no other gods 
Give yourself to nothing besides me. And then thirdly, from which direction do you view the sacrifice that is involved in your love relationship with God? Depending on where you are right now, what circumstances you're involved in, it may seem like you're sacrificing a lot. And you say, hey, I know this is a love relationship, and I know I'm supposed to have no other guys before me, but God, this seems like too much. That I'm being asked to give too much. and No other gods? Don't forget what he's given in comparison. Don't forget what he did in fulfilling these commandments. He who regarded equality with God, not something to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of of a human, pouring himself into a human form and becoming obedient in all the ways that we fail. And not just obedient, but obedient to, to death, to separation from God. And not just death, but death on a cross. Why? So that we might be made alive. So that we might have that treasure that pearl of great price in a relationship, a love relationship with our husband who loves us, who's rescued us out of bondage of slavery and said, now, love me. (laughs) I've grabbed a hold of you. Now quit grasping for other things and take hold of the hand that's got a hold of you. That's what he means when we read, don't have any other gods before me let's pray God thank you thank you that you don't leave us to wonder but you remind us you set it in stone that you love us and you're our husband that we aren't to have any other gods before you that you've rescued us from bondage from slavery and that you have committed yourself to us And so our response should be one of single-minded obedience, of realizing that our rights, our lives are no longer our own. We belong body and soul to you. And that there is sacrifice involved, but God, compared to what you have given for us, it's nothing. It's giving up our sinfulness. It's giving up our our self-righteousness and claiming and clothing ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus. We pray that that would encourage us in all the daily thousands of choices that we have to instead of choosing to trust and to rest and to look to other things for provision and protection, security, that we'll place that hope and that trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.